every single one of us knows, or at least I think every single one of us knows, what it's like to start something with great excitement only to have our excitement fizzle out. The first temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians and people had been exiled to Babylon. And then eventually 50,000 came back from Babylonian exile, sometimes referred to as the second exodus, to build the second temple. But the opposition was big. The task was immense because, I mean, the place was really leveled, not only, not only Babylon, but not only the temple, but much of the city. And uh, we saw in chapter 1, there was an immense task. People were self-centered, uh, and there was a lack of faith. And as they got started, the work very quickly came to a grinding halt. Sixteen years later, remember we talked about how quickly 16 years can pass by. Sixteen years later, the Lord sends the Old Testament prophet Haggai uh, to remind the people of God why he brought them back to Jerusalem. And as we saw last week at the end of chapter 1, they repented, they turned from their sin, and they started the work, although there are still conditions that are making things tough. There's a lot of enemies around. There's a lot of political turmoil that's going on uh, in the region. As we think about this, uh, some, you know, when we talk about you know, excitement fizzling out, some basic principles of faith emerge. Faith has to learn, with God's help, how to fight off difficulties and discouragement. Faith has to continue with God's help. Notice I'm saying with God's help, because I'm not saying you got to you know, buck up and get this right on your own. Faith has to continue with God's help, the work of the Lord, after the initial excitement is gone and things get tough. Faith has to remember, and this you remember by getting into the word of God and getting the word of God into you, Faith has to remember the resources that God brings with his call and not give in to the pessimism and not give up. And so the title of our message today is God's work in the midst of our discouragement. God's work in the midst of our discouragement. Now, some of you might have a question You might say, uh, Pastor Jim, is that God working or is that us working? To which I will say, hmm, good question, young Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) I think we will find out today that both are true. Well, let's uh, go back to Jerusalem. It's October of 520 B.C. and jump in. Uh, Chapter 2, Haggai, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. In the seventh month... On the 21st of the month, now it's been basically two months since the first time Haggai spoke to them, okay, the word of the Lord came by or came through, literally by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, remember said he's in line to be the next king, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, he's in line to be the next high priest, and to the remnant of of the people. And let's just stop right there for a second. So originally Haggai came to them, but we said it was harvest season. And so what was happening was um, for the first two months there, they've been harvesting crops and they've also been, remember we said they're working double duty and they have been clearing 60 years of ruin and getting ready to build. But there have been constant Delays, constant delays, including, you ready for this blasphemous statement? Including they've been delayed by God. You say, how in the world could it be that God delayed them? Well, all this came at festival time. When Haggai came and spoke to them, it was harvest time and it was festival time. And during festival time, no work was allowed. You're like, you want us to build the place, but we're not allowed to work. Now, let me ask you a question. I know you spiritual types know the answer. Is God's timing perfect? Really? I mean, do you really believe that? 
I know some of you are like, somebody needs to buy him a watch, right? Because it always seems like he's late to the dance. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, you want something and it seems like he, he's late. Um, it doesn't always seem that his timing is perfect. And that's something we really need to remember. It, w- it was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And what they did was they lived in tents. You can, some Orthodox Jews, they still practice that today. And, and they lived in tents for a week. And they remembering when, when the people of God came out of Egypt with Moses by the Lord's power, and they were living in tents in the wilderness. And so here they are. The people of God are inside the city. They're worshiping at a, at a, in a destroyed city, a destroy, at a destroyed temple, And I could imagine they're looking at the task ahead of them to rebuild the temple, and they're like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, just just the clearing of the thing is just insane. And most of us know that feeling, don't we? Your heart wants to do the work of the Lord, but you look around and things are such a mess. Sometimes it's your own life is such a mess. And you do not even know where to start. Then, of course, there are the people who, just imagine the people who came from the outskirts of Jerusalem, and they're coming in, and they're checking out the two months of progress so far. They are the people, we have them in churches, and they are the people with the gift of criticism. Oh, wait, did I say criticism? I'm sorry, my bad. They have the gift of discernment, right? I remember one time a woman, when we first started the church, came up to me, and she says, I have the gift of discernment. And I was like, oh, you're a critic. <laughs> Some things you learn as a young pastor, you never say again. <laughs> so we never saw her again. <laughs> so, so anyway, I don't know whether that was a blessing or not. I can't tell you. Uh, but you can just imagine some people with the gift of criticism come in and they're like, two months, this is all you did? It looks like you didn't even lift a finger. And then, of course, they would remember the good old days. Oh, you know, 400 years ago. King Solomon, he had to build, build the temple, start the building in the same season. It was harvest time. It was the feast time. And he really got things going, man. That, that first temple was really something else. And so the comparison trap, any of you in that comparison trap? Uh, whenever and the few times I ever go to the store, I just don't do the store. And uh, I think that God gave Amazon just to me, to be perfectly honest with you. And I don't go to the store, but I always feel bad for women. I always come home to Pam, and I'm like, I feel so bad. You don't look at those magazines when you're checking out, do you? I mean, they're so horrible. My wife's like, don't you be looking at those magazines when you're checking out. (laughs) And the comparison trap is just absolutely awful. And here's the thing, as a follower of Jesus with the comparison trap, you know, you can be doing something for the Lord and you're, compare, you're looking at what other people are not doing and you fill yourself with pride. Or you're so discouraged at what others are doing because they're not doing what you're doing, you just, be, just be, don't think that what you do really matters and both extremes are absolutely terrible. And so you know, there's, I have a formula for the, for the discouragement that I experience in my life and I always rehearse it to myself and it goes something like this. Big task plus expectations of myself and others, many of times which are unrealistic. Big task plus expectations equals discouragement. And a lot of times I find that to be paralyzing. And for me, it just works. I just need to sit down with a pen and paper and just write down all the stuff that needs to be done or I set up my computer and do it. And then I don't just leave it there. Then I organize it in steps. And I try to take one step at a time, and that really helps me uh, not get the job done, but at least not feel so bad about myself. So what are the expectations? Well, verse 3, I want to read twice. So the first, I'll read it through. Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? So let's go slowly. Haggai asks three questions. He doesn't want to know. Trust, he doesn't want to know. He knows the answers. He's trying to reveal their lack of faith. And so he asks three questions that give us a clue to some of the conversations that are going on. Question number one, who was left among you who saw this temple, uh, other versions say house, in its former glory? Now, let's just think about that for one second. Remember, we said that the temple was knocked out. 
and there's just this little piece of rubble right there that's left. And he says, God says, this temple. So does God already see it completed? Does God already see it as it's only really one temple? They can, remember the temple is symbolic of the presence of God. He's like, they can knock the building down, but they can't take me away from my people. That's where people, God gathers with his people. So the question really is, were any of you here before the, before the Babylonians destroyed it? Now, such people would have been there as kids. They would have been very, very young, and they would have to be over 70 years old now. You say, well, how could they remember it as a kid? Well, uh, some of you who are older remember your first trip to Disneyland. If you're younger, your first trip to Disney World, you don't remember much of anything. You were four. Your parents, didn't, they spent all that money not realizing you'd forget just about everything. But, but they figured that's what American parents do. And, and, and you remember the mouse, and, you know, it's a small world, and, you know, scary people running around looking like Darth Vader and stuff like that. So you, you, re, you remember all that stuff. Or maybe you were a kid. I've been there several times, but the first time I was very young when I went to the Grand Canyon. I remember that. I remember that to this day. So they, could, they would certainly remember it. It was the big thing to do as a young a Jewish boy, particularly, to go with your family to, to go to the temple. Question number two, he says, and how do you see it now? None of the version says, how does it look to you now? <laughs> so they're looking at a pile of rubble. They're <laughs> like, it's rubble, it's, it's, there's nothing there. It, it looks terrible. Question number three seems to be what they were probably all thinking. Again, he's not, quite, he's not wanting to know the answers. He, he's just trying to reveal the lack of faith in their heart. And he says to them, uh, in comparison with it, okay, the first temple, in comparison with it, is it not, not, is it, is it not in your eyes as nothing? Another version says, doesn't it seem like nothing to you? Now, the answer to that would be yes. I mean, even less than nothing. I mean, why bother? I mean, really, we don't have the resources to rebuild it the way Solomon did. It's, we, have, we have to not only clear everything, we have to rebuild it. Why bother? It's hopeless. Let's go back to what we're doing. So let's imagine you're one of the people who has seen the first temple that Solomon built in all of its splendor. Positively, in a positive sense, you're longing for the glory of God. You're longing for when the glory of God filled the temple. You're longing when people came from all over the world to see that great, great building and all the gold and all the beauty. But negatively, you might find yourself obsessed with the good old days. And we have to be very careful of that. Because the truth is, sometimes nostalgia can take us out of the present. And sometimes nostalgia can take us out of the future. Now, some of us that are, are older, uh, we, we remember, this was before my time, the, all the great conversions of the 60s, but then it gets closer to my time. The, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, when God was just doing this mighty work, and there would be people who were like drug addicts, and they prayed to receive Jesus, and then they're like, I don't want to do drugs anymore. You know, people like me, and they go, when did you quit? I go, I never did. They're like, you're a pastor and you still do drugs. They go, no, you asked when I quit. I never did. God quit for me. Doesn't seem to happen like that way anymore. But we can live in such a nostalgia sense that we've almost not realized it, but we're giving up on what God wants to do today. Looking at the ruins, looking at the selfish culture of their day, it would be easy to, pessim- to be pessimistic But Haggai is asking these pointed questions, as Jesus often did, to get them to see where their faith really is. I mean, it's such a soul-searching question for all of us. Is my attitude or lack of faith actually hindering the work of the Lord? And not only is it hindering the work in my own life, is it hindering the work of the Lord in the lives of those around me? You see, loved ones, it is so important to realize that both joy and caustic negativity are contagious. Most of your jobs has what? Caustic negativity. It's very, very contagious. Here's all I'll say as your pastor. Leave it in the car when you come in this building. Leave it in the car. 
And don't bring that in. Bring in the joy of the Lord. And here's the thing. That's a choice. It's not like you can't discard it. You can. That's a choice that we all are able to make. And so now we're seeing here in chapter 2 that the complacency of chapter 1 is giving way to the hopelessness of chapter 2. And they and we all need to remember that God can change things. That doesn't mean we, face, we don't face reality, but faith reminds us that the God of the past is the God of the present. And so when we read our Bibles, don't think, oh, it was easy for them. You think it was easy for people living in tents in the wilderness? Some of you walk out of service and you're like, Pastor Jim, it was too hot in the sanctuary, <laughs> right? <laughs> Fine, man. Get up and tell somebody, <laughs> right? <laughs> Not you people, the next service. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but really, we, we, the God of the past is the God of the present. He worked in their life. He can work in yours. Now, to show uh, that to the people of God, Haggai declares some things about the Lord and how he works in the midst of discouragement. If you're taking notes, number one, he talks about if you're discouraged and he reminds them of the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord. Basically, it's this. The Lord says, I am with you. I'm with you. Verse four, yet now... Other versions say, but, so change, be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And you think, well, I'm neither one of those guys. And number three, third time he says, be strong. And be strong, all you people of the land. Are you people of the land? That's us. Be strong, says the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says, some verses say, declares the Lord. So we might say, even when we are discouraged, we must remember the Lord is with us and be encouraged by that simple fact. Now, notice here, God's command is not just get to work. Rather, be strong and get to work. Why? Because I I'm with you. Now, please listen carefully, Christian, follower of Jesus. If you're here today and you're not one, we're glad that you're here. Super glad that you're here. Please say hi to me on your way out or get in touch with me during the week. But, but when he says, I am with you, it is so important to remember that sometimes that's all you get. Sometimes you're serving God and it seems like everything you're trying to serve God wherever you are. And you seem so, you're discouraged by it. And, and the fact that God is with you, sometimes that's all you get from him. Sometimes that's all you have to go with is the fact that he has promised to you that he is with you. Now, they knew that the same thing had been said to other generations. And God had enabled those previous generations to do great things for him despite the obstacles. And when we know, and I don't mean know just in our brain, but we know in our hearts and experientially by just, we read the scriptures and we know we're hearing from God, or you're sitting in church and you know you're hearing from God. When we know this, that the Lord is with us, it moves our heart for the kingdom of God. Without that, the fire to work for the Lord will quickly burn out. If you don't know that he's with you and he's not empowering you by your knowledge of that, you're not going to want to do it much longer. It's going to fizzle out. Because of the presence of the Lord, please hear this, loved ones. Because of the presence of the Lord, we can confidently take the next step, even if we are unsure of where the next step takes us, and often you will not be aware of where the next step is going to take you. That's why we call it faith. That's why we call it trusting in the Lord. Now, I know a lot of us want a GPS address. We're like, I want a destination, God. And you're like, no destination, huh? Okay. Um, how about a map? Some of you know what, any of you know what a map is? No, no map. How about a compass? (laughs) 
you might get a compass. <laughs> that's, that's about it. But God wants you to continue to take step by step by step, trusting him in his work. Now, when it comes to serving the Lord, this is something I really, really, really want to make sure that we are clear on. I realize this is going to add a lot of time to the sermon. Just don't count this against my time. Um, When it comes to serving the Lord, and for some of you, this is a review. I want to make sure we're clear on what the scripture teaches. As the old expression goes, to be a Christian is a received identity, not an achieved identity. Let me back that up. I want us to really absorb what that says. To be a Christian is a received identity, not an achieved identity. And therefore, we live our lives out of that identity that we have in Jesus Christ. How do you receive that identity? Jesus said you repent and you believe. You turn to God and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Not when we do certain things for God, Since our identity is not based upon what we do, our identity is based upon the work of Jesus Christ, not us, not us. Here's the danger. A lot of people think that duty gets you the identity you need. Not not true. I know most of you call me Pastor Jim. I refer to myself as Pastor Jim, half mocking myself out as I say it. But my identity is not as Pastor Jim. So don't go to heaven and God says, hey, you messed up. You're like, well, it was Pastor Jim's fault. (laughs) He's going to go, Pastor who? (laughs) I don't know that guy. I am Jim, a child of God. Right? Remember St. James. right? Because the saints are all God's people. And so, so we don't want to live our identity as what we do for God. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. So some people think you get your identity in Christ from what you do. False. Other people think that your identity Christ means there's no duty. That's false as well. One is called works righteousness. One is often referred to as cheap grace or antinomianism, anti-law. doesn't matter how I live. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 helps us in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Jesus did the work. We respond to that work in faith and trust, and we live our lives out of that identity. But trust me, you will be so much more confident living out of Jesus' identity than your own. Haggai is helping us to see that God's work comes out of, even though he's writing long before Jesus came, and is motivated by an identity we have as the people of God. You know, this is very basic, but I will say this. I think if you get your identity in Christ right, or reasonably right, and it's on the forefront of your mind, And you get the the constant awareness of the presence of God with you all the time right. You're going to get a lot of the Christian life right. I mean, that is basic, but I want to be simple. Get your identity in Jesus, not yourself, right. Get his presence with you all the time right. And you will find you'll get a lot of the Christian life right. Haggai demonstrates for followers of Jesus. Remember, we said that we, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, where we're looking back to the Messiah who has come. He demonstrates for us a perfect balance or a perfect tension between our dependence on the Lord and our grace-motivated effort for what the Lord has done for us and out of our identity in Jesus. Now, that is so different than the advice of the world. What, is the, what does the world say to you? <laughs> I know you have it in you. I have one simple question for when people say that to me. What about when I don't? Sometimes you don't have it in you. But you, when you're a Christian, you have Christ living in you, the only hope of glory, the only hope of victory, and we can serve the Lord. 
And, you know, when we, when we undertake projects or, or things for God, it's so easy to think, well, if we only had this, we could do it. Or if we only had that, we could do it. If we only had this person, we could do it. Then we could get it all done. But the Lord comes along and says, listen, you don't need to have that. You don't need to have them. You have me. That doesn't mean we don't do it together as a church and as a team. But that's really all we need for if God is for us, who? Nobody can be against us. Now, remember we talked about the comparison uh, to King Solomon and his expensive, beautiful temple. Now, you're sitting there and you're being critical. Some people are being critical of it. And you're thinking, well, it was easy for Solomon. I mean, he had King David as his father and, and there was never going to be any hassles at all. And sometimes we don't know what we don't know. Well, we always don't know what we don't know. And we think it's easier for other people. Well, listen to what it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. And David said to his son Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not, be, do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. What does he say? Son, listen, it's going to get tough. I know it's going to get tough. Whenever you want to take a step of faith, it's going to be tough. Don't forget this, Solomon. Don't forget this, son. God is with you. Be strong in faith and work. In other words, finish your race. Do what God has given you to do. Verse 5, I want to read this one twice as well. He says, according to the word that I covenanted with you, this is the Lord still speaking, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. So he reminds them that he keeps his word. He says again, verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you. He's saying, listen, you remember I made a covenant, I made a promise with Moses a long time ago, a thousand years ago, let's say. Easy math, probably a little less, but let's just say it, right? I made a promise to my people. When you came out of Egypt, when they came out of the Exodus with Moses. Now, it's such an important reminder because this is the group we know as the second Exodus. And so then he gives us a promise and a command. The promise, so my spirit remains among you. And then the command, once again, do not fear. Now, let's just think about it for a second. You're there. Put yourself there. You're not one of the people, you know, you want to, you want to get this thing done. And it would be easy to think that the, when the temple was destroyed, people were exiled to Babylon. And then they come back to this rubble. It would be easy to think that God had canceled his covenant, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be a natural conclusion. I think that a lot of people would make, you're like, oh no, Pastor Jim, we believe the word of the Lord. Okay, fine, I would believe it. And the glory of the Lord, the cloud of the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was the porta tent that they took around the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord in the first temple, that was a physical sign of the presence of the Lord. But there's something that is so very important that we really have to remember when we talk about the tabernacle in the wilderness. It's so important that I think that if you read through the book of Exodus, if you're on a Bible reading plan, what happens is you do great until you get to the second half of Exodus. And then you begin to get lost in the building of the tabernacle. And so the tabernacle, this wilderness tent that they were wandering in the wilderness with, was their worship center, if you will, it was sort of like a porter church, is built in Exodus 25 through 40. And that's where most people die in their Bible reading. They're just like, they're dying, they're dying. And then comes a passage that everybody gets and understands. But they don't really get the placement of it. And it is the event of the golden calf. So... God's telling them what to do. Moses goes up to the mountain. He's delayed up there. The people get upset. They're, they're you, know, pull, you know, getting at Aaron. He's the second in command. He just totally wilts under the pressure. And they say, we're going to build a God like we had in Egypt. So they build this golden calf. 
right? They make a false god right in the middle of the building of the tabernacle. The placement of that story is so key if you really keep your eyes open for it. What does that show us? God made a covenant with them. How did they do? Eh, horrible, horrible. Moses is gone and they came. Moses is like, I can't even leave you alone for a few hours. But not even the complete unfaithfulness of the people of God could destroy the Lord's commitment to his people. Did you hear that? Not even the complete unfaithfulness of the people of God could destroy the Lord's commitment to his people. And if you struggle to believe that, set your eyes on that. Set your eyes on the cross. God's faithfulness in the past, the cross and the resurrection, encourages us now and in the future, it's not about the building. It's about knowing God through his word and through his spirit and through his son. The people of God need the work of the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Lord, but a lot of the Holy Spirit's work is done through the people of God. Now, does the Lord need us? No. No, we don't have to serve God. You don't have to serve God. We get to serve God. It is a privilege But it's important to know that his work is seen in and through his people. That's how, other than conscience and creation, that's how, really, in hearing of the gospel, that's really how people are going to see God is in and through us, in both the routine and both the impossible. The Holy Spirit's presence is our confidence that the Lord can pick up and rebuild the rubble of so many of the lives around us. And maybe that's a word for somebody today. Maybe you have somebody in your life that, man, you just, you just, you're on your knees every day. You're just begging God. God, please, please. God can pick up the rubble. And he can build a temple. Maybe it's your life. You're sitting here in church, you're looking all, you know, religious and, you know, churchy. (laughs) But inside, you're dying. You're dying. I remember for a couple of months when my little sister died, I was up in this pulpit every Sunday, but inside I was dying. I was dying. And, and, And just keeping my identity straight, Believing that the Lord was with me was really all I had. And that was really all I needed. So if, if, if your life is a, just a complete train wreck today, come up here and pray with someone after the service. Ask us how you can get back on track. Haggai's contemporary, Zechariah, They were trying to get this thing built, and an angel appeared to him and said this, Zechariah 4, 6. So he answered the angel and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord says, I'm not expecting you to do this. I'm expecting you to let me do this. You say, well, what about my sin? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So what do you got to do? You got to work at it. You say, I can't do it. How can I do it? Well, it tells you verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. What is he saying? You take the next step and remember that God is with you. Don't be afraid of the task. Don't be afraid of the critics. Don't be afraid of the enemies. Don't be afraid of the lack of resources. Don't be afraid of of what seems insurmountable. Don't be afraid of your personal weakness. God's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you. 
once again, be encouraged that God is with you. That takes us to number two. When you're discouraged in the work of the Lord, number two, don't forget the power of the Lord. Don't forget the power of the Lord. Verse six is actually quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews 12. He says, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Once more, it is a little while. Some versions say once more in a little while. Now, remember this. Second Peter 3.18 tells that 3.8, sorry, says this. That with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That's why his timing and our timing don't jive. <laughs> so really, just like then, today, we're at the beginning of God's plan. So don't think the little things that you do don't matter. They matter. So thus says the Lord of hosts once more, it is a little while or in a little while, the Lord says, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land. Now, shaking has to do with judgment. You could have various shakings if you want. We'll break it down to two simple ones. The, the shaking at Mount Sinai with Moses and the, and the shaking at the second coming. But the writer of Hebrews, he quotes this verse to tell us this. This is after Jesus has ascended into heaven, that those in Christ have an unshakable kingdom. So yes, the world is shaky, but we have an unshakable kingdom. Verse 7, again, I want to read this one twice. And I will shake all the nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this verse is probably the most difficult verse in the book. Translation issues um, or manuscripts, really. Uh, some people believe that, it, that the treasure of the earth is, or the desire of the earth is Jesus. Other people, it's what people want. Um, the, you say, how does this, why does this happen? Well, the difficulty is in mixing singular and plural <laughs> terms in the same sentence, in the same context. Um, so some versions say the desire of all nations. I will shake all the nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. See that capitalized. That means that, that the, they think it's Jesus, those, those manuscript writers and those translators. Other versions say so that the treasures or desirable things of the nations come in, and that would be like the gold and the silver. God's going to make all the people who don't even believe in him bring their stuff in. And so this, it doesn't change any of the doctrines of, of Christianity. <laughs> all I can say on this is uh, both can be true, that the desire could be Jesus or it could be the, the treasure. And uh, welcome to Old Testament Hebrew writing. Uh, so, and he says, and I will fill this temple with glory. That's important. The, the symbolic of the presence of God says the Lord of hosts. Then verse eight, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now, these verses are sermons in themselves, but the point is clear. When it talks about God shaking, he's powerful when it talks about him actually, you know, bringing in gold and silver. And actually, the second temple was financed largely by unbelieving people, that, that everything is his. Yet while the world is shakable, our king and his kingdom is unshakable. So we serve until Jesus returns. Now, that, that simple little thought I want to, to emphasize just for a second, that should change our service, that we are serving until Jesus returns. That should change our worship. That should change our worship. You know, uh, my office is upstairs, and coming into this service, uh, I could hear you singing super loudly, super loudly. And I was, when I hear that, I just think to myself, oh, the dress rehearsal is going well. <laughs> because that's what our worship is. That's what this gathering is. This is a dress rehearsal for heaven. And we saw in chapter one, the people had grown very casual about it. And we know in America, a lot of Christians are growing very, very casual about it. And, and we should not be casual. We should we should absolutely cherish it. It is important. 
So why does God want his people to worship and serve? Because our lives, you know, he wants to be worshipped. It's good to worship him. It's true and it's right. And also because our lives and our church and the church is supposed to be a display of the glory of God and the grace of God and the power of God, not only to ourselves, not only to one another, but to an unbelieving world. When people come into the church and they're like, what is with all these people with all these Bibles everywhere, man? It's all in the laps. They're taking notes. Some of them look like they're checking Facebook, but some of them are really into this thing, man. What's going on? You say, who's checking Facebook? The person who just went. (laughs) Put that phone down. Don't want anybody to see that. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. The apostle Paul writes this. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power of uh, power may be of God and not of us. Such talk is becoming alien in the church in America. It's all about what we're doing, not what God is doing in the midst of what we're doing. Not how God is living his life through us so we can do the work of the Lord. That's what happens when you have a gospel without repentance, with a man-focused type of Christianity that wants to take the credit for itself instead of to God. Now, we said that we are to be a display of the glory of God, the grace of God, the power of God to to one another, to ourselves, to one another, to the world around us. That, That bears the logical question, okay, Pastor Jim, if God is so powerful, why doesn't he just change me right away? And as a pastor, that's a question you get a lot of, so I'll take a quick stab at it. Don't count this against my time either. In order for the Lord's power to be continually seen, I mean, I, I, I mean, I just think about this stuff. I realize that much learning is driving me mad, but I think about this stuff. That's a quote from the book of Acts said about the Apostle Paul, so I'm in good company there. That, that In order for the Lord's power to be continually seen in our lives, instead of instant change, just think about it, instant change would be seen and soon forgotten. Change is often slow. So we're constantly seeing the change. People are constantly seeing the change. And we're constantly dependent upon God for the change. Oddly enough, for those who are looking for it, the grace of God and the love of God is actually seen in his constant bearing with his sinful people. So we'll see more of the grace of God and the love of God by constantly coming to God, asking for forgiveness and to be changed and to be more like Jesus than we will if he just took everything out of us. Could we be like, oh God, I don't need you, I'm perfect, I'm good. And Over time, as you mature in your Christian walk, and I believe you will, such visions of God will begin to give you hope, passion, and confidence that God is at work in the midst of your greatest difficulties. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, uh, the risen and ascended Christ speaks to the Apostle Paul, and he writes, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What is he saying? He's saying, Paul, I know you want certain things to be a certain way, but people are going to watch you in your weakness changing pressing on, not giving up, and they're actually going to be seeing my power at work in you. But if I fix it all right away, they're not going to see it all the time. And therefore, the Apostle Paul adds, therefore, most gladly, I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Though it may not seem like it, God wants his people to look forward to the future, even in a discouraging present. That's why you have to remember, preach to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Preach to yourself that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, and God has the power, even though it looks impossible right now. I love. He says, once more in a little while, 
Talking about the second coming, I think God will shake everything into an eternal, perfect, heavenly existence for all those who have put their trust in Jesus. And while the temple they're going to build might not look like the first temple, ultimately the first temple will look poor compared to heaven. So who participates in this heavenly temple? Those who God shakes their world now, here on earth, and responds with faith and trust instead of unbelief. So when you're discouraged in the work of the Lord or just life itself, don't forget, number three, the person of the Lord. The person of the Lord. To them, they were, the, the prophets were saying that the Lord would come. To us, the, the New Testament tells us that he will come again. I believe the Old Testament does as well. Verse 9. The glory of this latter temple... Now, remember, the glory is the presence of God. It's not about the building. It's not about the structure. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, you think, how is that possible? We don't have everything we need to make it like Solomon's temple. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. So so they they know that the temple they're building in no way is going to compare to the first temple. And false religion will soon consume it. Now, at this point, I think it's fair to say that the Lord was weaning them off buildings, types, and symbols, and preparing them for the reality of Jesus Christ. Sadly, in about 20 BC, about 500 years later, before Jesus was born, King Herod started a massive temple project. He took this dump of a temple And he made it into this beautiful thing. It was more of a political thing. But what was the, why do I say sadly? Because it diverted the people's attention from the presence of the Lord to the building. And you know, that curse is still with us today. How, for how many people is it all about the building? Like we go to church, like we're going to church. I understand we use that expression. But the church is not the building. The church is the gathering of God's people to worship him. And it's so sad that that's how many people relate to that. And you're like, why do you think you're going to heaven? Because I go to church. (laughs) You're sitting in a building. If God's not there or God's not in you, you're sitting in a building. But one day, and, and here's the thing, man. These prophets, they didn't know. I don't think they knew often of what they spoke. One day, a little over 500 years later, Malachi, in one verse, points to the first coming and, I believe, the second coming. Because one day, the Lord of glory walked himself into that temple. And that moment made that temple better than Solomon's ever could have been and it made better than the tabernacle in the wilderness was, and it made better than if King Herod had never touched the place because the Lord of glory, who they knew as Jesus the carpenter from Nazareth, walked in to the temple. Malachi, 500 years earlier, told us it would happen. Malachi 3.1, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, the Lord speaking, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The New Testament makes it clear. That's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In Matthew 12, 8, Jesus is in a field. He's out in the middle of a field on the Sabbath day. And he says this to a bunch of religious leaders. Yet Matthew 12, 6, Yet I say to you that in this place, in this field, there is one greater than the temple. And those religious people thought there was nothing greater than the temple. Why would Jesus say that? Because Jesus' presence provided more than the Old Testament glory cloud could Because God became a man and died on the cross and rose from the dead. Why? So we could have peace with God. And as the New Testament teaches, we could become the temple of the Holy Spirit because God comes to dwell with inside of us, making us the temple of God. How is all of this possible, you say? We read it several times. He says, 
I'll be with you. And I will do it. That's how it's possible. What, what's our part? Our part is very simple. We respond. We respond by, by the only positive response is to put your trust in Jesus. There's two negative responses. One is, one is just say, I don't want it. I don't care. No God, no Bible. Nobody going to tell me how to live my life. Fine. Live with your guilt complex the rest of your life. That's fine. That's what you, that's you, God lets you figure that out. Others of you might say, well, I'm not against him. I'm not for him. God says that's a negative choice. If you're not a follower of Jesus, the Lord commands you to respond by repenting and believing, turning to God, putting your trust in Jesus. Jesus promises you, if you do, the forgiveness of sins and an eternity of peace. Because the reality is, when Jesus returns, God will set the world right. There will be justice and judgment for those who don't believe and the peace for those who do. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul preaching says this, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands uh, all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. If you're not a follower of Jesus, today you can turn to God and put your trust in Jesus. Come up front, pray with someone, grab someone who's walking around serving, and you can receive the forgiveness of sins and an eternal life of peace with God, an eternal life in heaven. And that actual eternal life would begin for you today. If you are a follower of Jesus, it can be very easy for our pessimism to overcome the possibilities, can it? But we, too, are called to respond in faith. The Lord called Haggai to remind them and to remind us that the Lord's presence, the Lord's power, and the Lord's person is all with us in the midst of our discouragement. The Lord called them to look back at the Exodus, and he calls us to look back at the cross and resurrection as the reason for our hope. It's at the foot of the cross we find the strength and encouragement to press on and the power of the Holy Spirit to change. It's at the foot of the cross that we desire to be a people who invite other people to meet our glorious Savior, Christ the King. And then as we peer into the empty tomb because Christ had risen, I hope that our hearts long for eternity when we will see the Lord. And the book of Revelation says that he is the temple. My dear Christian friend, God is at work in the midst of your discouragement. May you this day and this year and for the rest of your days find great encouragement in that. Well, let's stand and pray.